Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Hello and welcome to episode 80 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Rich Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart. And joining us tonight, he is the co-director of the Soho Horror Festival. You may also remember him from the Seed of Chucky episode of this show. It is Mitch Harrod. Welcome back, sir. Surprise, Mitch. I bet you thought you saw the last of me. <laughs> What's good, fucks? How are we doing? We are pretty good. Well, I'm pretty good. I'm I'm also good. Uh, I'm very good. I mean, I, I'm, I'm all the better for hearing your voice, Mitch Harrod. Well, thank you. I'm terrible. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, are, are you feeling rested? Are you more able to take a step back and look at the, the festival now that it's kind of disappearing in the rearview mirror for this year and say, that went well? I don't think I've switched off from festival mode just yet, but um, yeah, it went kind of good. We'll get like properly into it in a little while, but... Yes, um, we're here to talk about A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. Yeah, and Mitch, one of the reasons why you chose this, because obviously we planned to do this a little while ago in advance of the festival, but there was a kind of festival-orientated reason for why you chose it, or it was one of the drivers at least. Absolutely, yeah. I mean... It's uh, maybe I should preface this by saying like this isn't my favorite Nightmare on Elm Street. It's not my second, well, not even my third favorite <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street. But uh, yeah, it's it's a film that's super important to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a film that's super important to uh, a culture that I feel a part of. Um, so I feel that there's kind of two reasons for one to talk about this film from my perspective. Anyway, uh, like a, it's a total misgiving. It's either regarded as shit or like the butt of a so bad it's good Walmart bin joke. Um, <laughs> and and B, we're in this burgeoning kind of like renaissance period of queer horror intersectionality. And um, like myself, along with a whole group of people, including the lead actor Mark Patton, who's the star of this incredible documentary that's come out this year, which we will talk about in times to come. Um, they've kind of tasked themselves with changing the topic of conversation uh revising the text and almost re-owning the power that's been stripped away by the film so that is why i have picked nightmare on elm street part two freddy's revenge why is it called freddy's revenge let's kick it off right now why the fuck is it called freddy's <laughs> yeah, look, revenge? i mean let's get into it i mean i'm nice that is he's not taking revenge on anybody he's done his revenge like he's he, he should be pretty chill but no apparently not he's got more nope nope well i mean i guess ultimately freddy's revenge on a wider scale is against the kids of springwood they're not so much nancy thompson like and individual her family vendettas, yeah. but if the revenge was indeed to be kind of pointed towards nancy thompson she is not in this film um neither is anyone from the previous film <laughs> actually part three is probably more of a direct sequel to the first film than this one is well absolutely um do you know kind of what the, the landscape is. I'm sure you guys have seen Never Sleep Again. Yes, um, I have. I'm sure yes. most of the audience probably seen Never Sleep Again. Incredible documentary about the, the whole kind of Nightmare on Elm Street saga and the way it unfolded. But I think it's really, really interesting to put into perspective how Nightmare on Elm Street 2 sits within the franchise because, I mean, famously uh, and, and almost infamously, uh, it's an outlier. It doesn't technically exist within a franchise. Um, 
It's the only film that's never referenced again. Uh, none of the characters within Freddy's Revenge uh, ever come up, even in passing conversational reference mm -hmm. in any of the subsequent sequels. <laughs> and yeah, Andy, like you said, uh, Dream Warriors, which is the best Nightmare on Elm Street film. Correct answer, sir. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Can we can we just change the whole format of the podcast and talk about that one? No? Okay, fine. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was Wes's direct sequel, so to speak. Um, Wes never wanted to do a sequel to Nightmare on Elm Street. He wanted yeah. to exist mm -hmm. on its own because uh, if, if we can kind of make erasure happen uh, back to 84, there was no real such thing as franchise-ology. The idea of having your film sequelized was a, a negative. It was a cash-in. And uh, Wes, as an artist, never wanted to do that. So he did not want to see his film made into a sequel. The problem was that kind of Bob, the, the production crew, were broke. They mm -hmm. needed to make another film to replenish their odds. And uh, like it or not, Nightmare on Elm Street was a degree of commercialist success. So they put in production this script that had kind of almost nothing to do except for the uh, kind of the, 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 the main character, the main villain, uh, with the first film. And we're going to get back onto that later when yeah, I when I true. when I jump when I jump kind of double fist defense into this film. Mm -hmm, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I kind of wanted to set that from the outset. I think we 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 talk about Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the Thirteenth and Halloween so much as a franchise, but it, it's almost retrogressive of us. We have to think about it the fact that when these films were made, especially the second entry in them. There was no franchise present. There was no idea of turning this into a multi-billion-dollar industry. That's right. Yeah. Um, a billion dollar might be an exaggeration. Million-dollar industry. Um, <laughs> Certainly, this, lots of money. <laughs> yes, some money. This was a. This was just a, a, a sequel film, really. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the part in the show where uh, we would normally go into a thirty-second synopsis, Mitch, and we are going to do that. But it's refreshing to see that Mitch Harrod has already managed to get double fisting into the show. <laughs> Tick. <laughs> <laughs> but if, you're, if you're playing dirty bingo, then you're off to a flyer. However, Mitch, it is 30 second synopsis time. You've done this before. I'm assuming that this is going to go swimmingly well. It's not, because guess what? You didn't. told me off. I was fucking slagged to high heaven last time for preparing within an inch of my teeth that synopsis. So this time, anarchy rules. We, oh, we, we, right. All bets are off. We have, um, we have kind of like soft imposed a ban on people writing stuff. Obviously, it's very difficult to police because most of the people aren't in the room. But So I guess it's like... It's not against the rules, but it's against the spirit of it to have prepared comments, we've it's decided. It's frowned upon. It's frowned upon, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. But yeah, if I count you in, are you good to go? I am as ready as I'll fucking ever be. Okay. <laughs> right then. Three, two, one, go. So, like, five years after uh, Freddy Krueger's uh, defeat in the first film, we have a new entry into our saga. We have Jesse Wallace moving into Nancy Thompson's former home, and he is the first person in Springwood since the kind of formative events that happened in Nightmare on Elm Street. He is a flamboyant character, and he is new to this town, and he is introducing himself to all of these new teenagers. But guess what? He has this thing burning inside of him, and it turns out to be Freddy Krueger. Is it? Maybe. Done. <laughs> not bad. Not bad. Right. I think we should get stuck into this. Absolutely, we should. Um, because uh, the film doesn't fuck around, neither should we. I just want to say, this film made more than double the box office than the that like, the first film did. That's, so, a, that's uh, a riot. In the eyes of New Line, this was a massive success. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things I was going to say is that I think... The whole point I was making about kind of like changing the topic of the way we talk about Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 uh, is exactly that, because people hail it as this critical and commercial failure. 
categorically so one of the worst of the whole series and yet yeah and exactly like you said it made five million more than the first which translates to like i think it was something like 75 million gross right in narrowness terms which for a horror film is fucking crazy it's mm-hmm. great and the, the, it's kind of more interesting the fact that it was initially successful than the way that people want to portray it, which was that it was just this absolute bomb and a crash. Um, it was kind of almost everything that happened afterwards that changed people's perception of it being this this failure of a film. So yeah, thank you for mentioning that. You're very welcome. Yeah, let's get let, let's get into this though. And well, well, we kick off with the school bus dropping some kids off. It does not take the most perceptive eye to spot that that is Robert England driving the bus. It is indeed, yep. Obviously out of makeup at this point. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, we do get our kind of first encounter with uh, Jesse here. Yeah, he's uh, yeah. looking He's looking weird. Like, he, looks, he looks fucking rough. Yeah. yeah. It, looks, it, looks, <laughs> it looks preposterous. Like he's got his hair's like all really slicked down in this really geeky, dweeby way. He's dressed really weird. Like... It's nothing like the Jesse that appears in any other dream yeah, down the line. Um, actually, I don't, like he looks so different from what it looks like in the rest of the film that after we saw him here and then you see him again after this, it took me a second. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, that's the guy from the start. <laughs> yeah, that, can I posit maybe why that might be the case? And this Absolutely. hasn't been corroborated any kind of... So my thoughts on this is that, so, I mean, not to screw the pooch and jump the shark, but this is a dream sequence we're talking about right now. And this is Jesse's dream sequence. So could it maybe be that his perception of himself is this pure outsider, this dweeb, this nerd that looks fucking terrible, even though in reality, when we see him, he's this super hot 80s hunk? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Mitch, uh, your theory comes right down in line with the theory I had. So, uh, yeah, that's exactly the same thing I had. That that's his perception of himself projected yeah. into that dream. And I didn't it's have nice. a theory. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, it's nice to know me and Andy fancy the same guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's true. Yeah. There's some more I, I must interject to say that I love that uh, Strong Language and Violent Scenes is now just becoming a gay defense podcast off the back of Cruising last week. and Hellbent. Hellbent, exactly, with Nick, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we've been racking them up lately. Yeah. Yep, we're taking over. This is it, yeah, yeah, and, infiltration. Uh, I guess yourself previously, we see the Chucky. 100%, yeah. yeah. Trans icon. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> this this yeah this this bus sequence brilliant wonderful it's such good miniature work as well i, yeah. I a lot of people are going to make fun of this especially if you kind of didn't grow up through this level of practical effects mm-hmm. but I, I i mean i watched this this morning for like the 800th time and i still think it stands up so good uh that final image of the bus kind of teetering on a parapet in this chasm it's like the best prog album ever right yeah do you know i'm I'm not about to take any criticism of this stuff because in the kind of overall context of the, the franchise there's effects that are similar but probably less effective like miniature stuff throughout the rest of it so i don't see a problem with this and people can rip the piss out of it if they want but i think it's unwarranted and it's just another thing being fired at this film yeah totally i agree i think uh to, to kind of extend beyond that i think the effects work in this film is maybe one of the best of the series. I think it's really visceral. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of stop motion work, like we'll kind of see in Dream Warriors and Part 4. But I think everything in here, that they do it sparingly. And I know that's used as a criticism in kind of later revisionist uh, views on it. But everything that you see is super in your face and it works. It's intense. Yeah, and I, I kind of like the look of Freddy throughout as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you? He's, I do kind of like, like the, the bit where he's exposing his brain and when he kind of emerges out of uh, Jesse later on in the film. 
Like, I like yeah. Freddy's look. The only point I've got the real issue with is when he's he looks kind of weird at the, the pool party. Pool party, yeah. yeah. He looks like a bad lasagna, doesn't he? <laughs> like, it's, just, it's just not good. But his initial reveal, like, I, I remember when I first kind of uh, saw him emerge when the bus journey turns out to be his kind of warped version of Jesse's nightmare. Yeah. And he just spins around in the seat and I'm like, oh, okay, we're just going to show the villain on the outset. This is what he is now. Straight um, but they actually do it really artistically in the way that Freddy's kind of scraping his claws over the seats and on the ceiling. That's what is honed in on these close-ups. These yeah really intense like kind of ambush predatory form and uh, it's one of the last times in the franchise if we're going to look at it retrospectively that we see freddy as an actual predator as, as someone that is purely villainous and not doing it for joke value mm. yeah. yeah yeah they still make moves in this to focus a lot in freddy's eyes and get real tight on him like they did in the first one and to focus on the claw before freddy becomes just this total caricature where you would be amazed if they teased freddy for as long as they did in the first one or even in this one yeah absolutely yeah you could argue that he's put on screen too early in this but i think he's put on with a degree of restraint and dream logic that it kind of justifies everything yeah i, th- I, th- I think it gets away with it because i think that yeah it is open to that criticism but i think that it's done in such a good in such an effective way that i think that it ca- yeah I, th- I think it works i think i think that just kind of getting him right in there is a fine choice because it's done so well also the film's called freddy's revenge so he's kind of front and center that's true but why why <laughs> <laughs> what is he avenging <laughs> Moving on, so so like like we kind of said, that was a dream sequence. Sure. Yeah. Does it have anything to do with the overall play of the film? Maybe we'll find out at the end. Who knows? <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that kind of concludes with Freddy advancing. He kind of slashes, and we cut to um, a family kitchen where we hear Jesse, uh, well, we'll find out it's Jesse screaming from upstairs. Uh, his little sister, whose name escapes me, simply says, why can't Jesse wake up like everyone else? We jump up to uh, Jesse, and there is waking up in a sweat, and then there's this. He looks like he's just come out of the shower and gone straight back to bed. That is one sweaty boy. Sweaty yeah, man. Very sweaty boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like the director really, really wanted to sexualize him. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Obviously, that's not the case. Yeah. I feel if like I've got enough glycerin on. No. <laughs> Well, apparently, famously, the director said he didn't really pick up on the subtext in the script, but I don't know how anyone could fail to notice it. I mean, we can we can delve into kind of Jack Shoulder, he's the director, and Dave Chastin, the writer. Uh, yeah, we could we could delve into that at any point, but that is a minefield I can't wait to obliterate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that there's subtext, and then I think that in this subtext, it, it's basically just. It's, it's, I was gonna say. <laughs> In here, it's basically just text. It's text. It's 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 the book right in front of you, and the pages are all sticking together for some reason. <laughs> Can I just quickly mention uh, Clue Gulliger here as uh, the dad? He is excellent. I mean, yeah, he is. Can I also mention Clue Gulliger here as the dad eating tomato raw sliced <laughs> for breakfast? <laughs> you mean you don't sit down to a hearty tomato for breakfast? Some people have a grapefruit. I think instead of eating tomato for breakfast, I will eat my Fu Manchu cereal. Yes, your Fu Manchus <laughs> with three claws. Right. Um, obviously, this is a weighty, weighty film talking about kind of homosexuality and sure, sure. Uh, Hollywood in the 80s and discuss 
Fu Manchu cereal because I didn't realize it was real until I was like, that's weird. I'm going to Google it. It's fucking real. I was going to say, I didn't realize that was real until right now when those words came out of your mouth. Yeah, same. I assumed it was one of those brands that's made for, (laughs) that's just made like Morley cigarettes in the X-Files. To be fair, would it be weirder if it was made up? So it's it's not even like it's this like archetrivance that's been put in purely to do the whole like nail gag. Because when, well, we're, we're kind of getting ahead, but when Jesse comes downstairs, he looks at his sister wearing these uh, like plastic freebie fingers from the cereal. And it's like, what? Because it obviously looks like Freddy. Mm-hmm. But it's not. It's this Fu Manchu figure who uh, I think is maybe lost on contemporary audiences. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's probably that was, that was a real fucking thing. And you can get it on eBay. Wow. I looked it up. And I'm maybe considering it. Now, Mitch Bain, you said that um, when we spoke with Graham Resnick previously about Poltergeist 3, mm-hmm. you said that at every possible opportunity in that film, people tell you how cold it is. Yeah, the, yeah. the, the opposite is happening here. Um, it's, like, it's 97 degrees! <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm presuming that's Fahrenheit, which I well, believe yeah. is body temperature. <laughs> It's just water boiling everywhere. Like, what? <laughs> um, yeah, but it is it is uh, unseasonably warm, uh, localized entirely to their house. <laughs> and uh, understandably, that's uh, what they want to talk about. Uh, straight out of this, we also have done another kind of rapid-fire character introduction. We meet Lisa. Yeah, Kim Miles, Meryl Streep alike. So much like Meryl Streep. It's ridiculous. Yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of re- their relationship is left a little vague at the start, I think. And here on out, it's where I jump in to defend the film with, um, it's a scapegoat, let's face it, but it's what I call dream logic. <laughs> sure. Like, so much, I mean, like, this this is this is not a well-written film. This is, <laughs> this is pure shit. This, like, any kind of screenwriter would go, what, how are we getting from A to fucking B here? Is Jesse dreaming? Is this the real thing? Is it back to back? Um, yeah, this 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 all happens incredibly. <laughs> this this all happens incredibly rapid fire um, because they are met for long enough. It's established that, he, that he's giving her a lift to school, and then it's straight to um, a baseball game where uh, Jesse is hit in the head with a ball hit by Grady. Grady, wrong Grady. <laughs> Played by Robert Russell here, who was driven to his audition by Robert Downey Jr. Absolutely. Which is uh, this weird thing you find on IMDb, and you go like, oh, it's one of those trivia facts that's not fucking true. But apparently it is. Yeah. He goes on about it all the time. It's almost like he doesn't have any actual friends in Hollywood. (laughs) It's like, like, remember I did did Weird Science in this film back to back? (laughs) We go onto the football, suddenly we're on the football field. Uh, Baseball, yeah. we're, We're meant to presume... And, and we will presume, because dream logic, yep. this is Jesse's first day at school. One of his first days at school, right? But then everyone seems to already know him. He doesn't seem like an outcast or like the new guy. Seem- I have problems with that too. Because he's like his room is in a state of disarray. Yep. And he has not unpacked his boxes, famously, because his dad keeps telling him to <laughs> unpack his boxes. Yeah. Like, so we have to presume that he's not been there for a long time. But like Mitch said, he's acting very, very normal with the Christy McNichol lookalike. So I think it would be natural to presume that this is one of his first days in school. Right? Yes, reasonable. But he, he is fitting in very well. I would very say so. well, yeah. very well enough for what we and this is like because we we talk about kind of like film tropes and everything. Grady is not the stereotypical bully. No, he seems it actually seems quite sound for the most part. Yeah, but his outset is technically bullying the protagonist, right? I mean, he does uh, pants him here. <laughs> I mean, like but right that's now, just, that's just good-hearted horseplay. 
there's not it's a lot of faggotry right there is what we've got <laughs> We've got, like, Jesse's playing baseball. He gets distracted by some other boys. Who doesn't? And um, he's, he's like, caught out by the lead jock. And they fight, and it rips off his joggers. And he's, uh, yeah, strips him down. So he's serving, like, bare-ass jockstrap realness. Yep, true. And Grady is loving it. And all of the girls, and this is what I love about this as well, all of the girls, the cheerleaders or whatever the fuck they are, are objectifying him, which is a super, like, gender flip for like 80 stereotypes yeah for the time definitely yeah 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 and then we've got like sandra bernhardt from roseanne rolling around in the dirt with a jock on top of him it's good that is i mean that's gay culture (laughs) (laughs) what i actually like is the fact that apart from lisa just about every other female character has done exactly what you said for the whole film like that pal of lisa's that keeps turning up all she does is ask if she's fucked jesse yet um she's just desperate for gossip it's almost it's almost like they're purposefully flipping the genre, the genders, but you've got to remember the writer and director didn't want this to be a gay film. So I just, I don't want people to misconstrue this, okay? Sure. <laughs> With that in mind, let's talk a bit about the first introduction then of Coach Schneider. <laughs> Well, yes, Coach Snyder comes on scene when they are wrestling in the dirt with Jesse with his fucking pants around his ankles. Mm-hmm. And what's the first word he says? Assume the position. <laughs> Duck bags. I mean, how else can we take that? Yeah. How else can we fucking take that? Come on. Yeah, and Marshall uh, Bell yes. doing great stuff here. He, he's, he's wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. Isn't it? This is an incredibly game performance from him. <laughs> It's fair. He immediately decrees that they have to do push-ups as punishment, um, as is my understanding. At this point... Uh, Quite bad at push-ups. Yeah, both pretty bad. Uh, Grady and Jesse have a kind of discussion hey. about coaching... The- oh, yeah. <laughs> Some of us are overweight. Fuck off. Uh, I haven't done a push-up since the Clinton administration. <laughs> you were like five years old. The, the World Cup has changed hands three times since the last time I exercised. <laughs> Exactly. He was five, which is like this <laughs> wonderful vision of Mitch as this muscle hunk toddler being like, must do my push ups, must do it. Just cutting about an absolutely hench infant. <laughs> Love it. I think it's really funny here um, when uh, Grady is asking Jesse about what's going on with him and Lisa. It seems like such a weird approximation of this kind of chat. I think it's really funny when he's like, are you mounting her nightly or what? Because is that not what we all say when we talk to our friends? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I got lucky. Took a girl home and mounted her. <laughs> yeah, that kind of hung in the air a little bit for me. Um, but yeah, Grady kind of drops a little bit of an exposition bomb. Not for us as much as for Jesse. And that he tells him kind of about the history of the house. Now, Andy, you made a cool point about this. About the fact that he doesn't get the history of the house 100% right. Yeah, it's got that small town Chinese whispers quality to it. You know, where uh, things have been kind of diluted. And... <laughs> Uh, and, and people don't necessarily have the full story so it's just a vague kind of outline of like the events of the first film but yeah. uh, they're quite off the mark it's like it's like, it's, like, it's like a previously on from an unreliable narrator yeah <laughs> uh more sleeplessness for jesse here um goes to investigate a noise outside comes back inside uh, Shadow's moving in the basement. His dad is incapacitated for whatever reason. And we have uh, his first kind of direct encounter with Freddy in that they kind of have a conversation here. He kind of comes um, almost with what feels like, not a proposition, but he basically explains what's about to happen to him. In this case, whereas in the past, as I'm to understand it, 
Freddy uses dreams to kill to get revenge on the, the children of the people who burnt him, yada yada yada. And then he uses their fear to spread them as the mythology progresses. I don't know. But certainly in this case, he is planning to inhabit Jesse. Yeah, totally. Well, now, let me just put a pause in our plot. Welcome to my TED Talk about <laughs> what we want in a sequel. So, what do we go into with a horror sequel? Because everyone's got a fucking opinion, apparently. We want an expansion of the mythology, right? We yes. want to a, a degree that something that is different. Because why are we going to watch the same retreading of the same grounds? Well, from a creative endeavor, you're going to come at it from a different perspective. And I really, really respect one of the few things I respect of Dave Chaskin uh, here is that we've got almost a completely rescribing of the slasher formula. Famously, Wes reformatted the slasher to work within supernatural means. Well, now we're not dealing with a slasher. We're dealing with a possession story. Yes. Yeah. This yeah. is this is this is talking about uh, someone that's going to inhabit someone and is going to control their behaviours. And I think that's what we've got right here. And that's kind of an interesting thing because obviously, with the kind of being able to look back at this as a series now, you can look at that and say that 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 the film gets the mythology of the rest of the franchise wrong. But it's arguable that yep. the second film makes an earnest attempt to expand on it, and the only reason that it's wrong is because it gets retrofitted yeah. by what happens after that mm. yeah, and i mean look I mean, look later on in the film freddy's in the real world killing people yeah it's, it's somebody trying to do their own thing with it and like you say it's completely overlooked and changed everything's just changed back yeah which which, which uh yeah which is not this film's fault oh absolutely not no no, no. totally not no, no no what they're trying to do is they are literally expanding the mythology the the problem is that we have retrogressively gone that mythology is wrong yeah. Uh, well, they they couldn't have known that at that no. time. They they are wanting to do something new with this, and I think if you if you look at the film in a nuclear sense, even with the first film kind of like built into it as as, as only a a sequel, only there's there's no other entries into the franchise, then you have got something that is not only consistent ish. We'll get to that later, mm -hmm. but interesting. It's a development. It's it, in the exact same way that Rec Two expanded the mythology of the zombie outbreak. All of the rules that they set out loosely in Nightmare One, they're going well. Here's some new stuff to throw at it. If it sticks, great. And I think it sticks fairly well, if not viewed with all of the subsequent entries where Wes came fucking in, bulldozer like, and proud onto it but yeah i would actually say i don't entirely agree i feel that even though it is an earnest attempt to do something different i feel like it's a little bit throw shit at the wall and see what sticks okay, okay that's another turn that's another read yeah. for sure and, um, yeah sometimes it kind of the, the logic or the physics of it get a little bit lost and just trying to do as much mad stuff as they can i agree purely within the constraints of the the, the story that is portrayed on screen yeah, that, I mean that's all I'm. That's all I'm going on. I'm not taking any of the future films yeah, yeah. into consideration here. It's purely what we've tried to do with this character is give them the ability to do X, Y, Z. But do they in any way make sense, or do they track? And I'm not convinced they do at all times in the film. Mm, okay. Neither is mine based on the rest of the series. I've really tried to look at this this time anyway, eradicating anything from Dream Warriors on. And this is purely based on what they're going to do. And also what I think, and this is where I pile my gay shit on here, what I think they're trying to do within the climate. Maybe we should talk about 
a dance sequence. Well, yeah, I mean, it is coming up pretty soon. We do have some uh, funny stuff where uh, Jesse's beset by a python, which isn't in any way... I mean, everything in this film is just going, that's a dick, that's a dick. <laughs> it's literally there, there's a camera angle that looks down on him like they've obviously got their camera like on a tripod six foot up yeah positioning down and that python's tail is between his legs and <laughs> you cannot lie to me that that wasn't intentional um, yeah, what's it's... also weird is that this python is not a dream like no, this is not a film that it uses dream logic a lot and it, it's very liquid with the way it moves between the two this it's, it's not a dream sequence. They've got a seven-foot boa constrictor in their classroom. Uh-huh. Their physics classroom, I think. Um, I, I thought biology. Biology, um, I, I had biology, biology. Purely because, yes, there is a very large snake in the room, and also at one point the, the teacher just dead-ass throws a heart on a table. There is an, also an infantile discussion about the digestive system. Yes, also yes. true. All signs hey, point to biology, I would say. Also, I kind of feel like what would be a good thing to have in here for this episode would be the audio of that class of kids from the Wicker Man remake that all just chant phallic symbol, phallic symbol. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, to pull this towards the scene that you were talking about, Mitch. Um, yeah. Lisa calls Jesse and suggests that he come over and hang out by the pool or some such nonsense. And he's going to go for it. He's going to go for it, but his dad, as you said, is obsessed with these boxes and the unpacking of the contents. And I guess essentially grounds Jesse until it's done. Effectively, yeah. So he does. He decides, do you know what? Fuck it. If I get this done, I can get on with my weekend, assuming it's the weekend. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he uh, goes to his room and unpacks. (laughs) He unpacks a lot. (laughs) 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 let me not be the first person to unpack a lot from this scene as well Um, yeah we've got Fonda Ray we've got George Michael glasses we've got laundry twerking (laughs) and what what is that thing that he does that little pop boner come dance what is that oh like? yeah the, 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 very, the very last thing because obviously obviously all this happens um, in yes. montage he's cleaning his room and ultimately he's walked in on by both his mom and Lisa and yeah I think yes. what you're talking about Mitch is the absolute last thing that he's doing when the door opens yeah Absolutely. he's thrusting with some kind of ball and cup game or something and he like <laughs> pops the little uh, the little ball out I guess at the, the, the moment of climax um, in the scene he does indeed uh, pop one off. Uh, yes, he does pop one off. And this, this is my f- absolute favourite. I don't care about any other symbology. Like, when you could start to argue that it, maybe it was subtext, the fact that a director, someone shot Mark Patton in close-up doing a <laughs> scene from his crotch. Yep. Like, <laughs> and then subsequently, everyone denied that this was homoerotic. Yeah, I don't know, man. I think you're projecting. This, this <laughs> is this is case number one. This is also the first scene in the film where he's wearing the shirt. There was a kind of thing flew around on the internet because Bill Hader's character in It Two had a very similar shirt on. Okay. And they were going, "See, see, he's gay. Mm. The signs are there." I didn't know mm-hmm. that was a thing. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I have Bill Hader in my closing speech, so yes. No, no, I thought you were going to say, I have Bill Hader on speed dial. Uh, we'll call him and find out. <laughs> Lisa comes over and helps him unpack at this point, and they find Nancy's diary. Well, before yeah. that, she finds his jock itch powder. Yeah, yeah. That's, that also <laughs> Which happens. is quite funny. Um, yeah, the tone of this starts kind of jokey when they're reading through it, and kind of they're kind of making light of it. And then obviously it starts to get a little bit more somber as he starts to see it kind of mirroring his own experience. Do you know, I wish the ball from that pop game thing had hit Lisa in the face. <laughs> 
Not his mum. <laughs> no, I agree with that. Because guess what happens next? Jesse is living his super queen fantasy. And yeah, she comes over and his mum's like, Ooh, and he's like, Ooh, and they then do, do some little interactions. And where does she find the book? Where does she find them, guys? Yeah, in the closet. In the closet. Thank you. Yeah. Case rest. And then they talk about this like weird sexualization of Freddy. Because I'm pretty sure in the first film, having watched it, a bazillion times he doesn't seductively take off her shirt at no point does he do that he's like i won't fucking kill you yeah but that that symbology of finding that diary in his closet do you know what also is in the closet this is wonderful this isn't my observation like everyone has talked about this but there is a a, a board game which i think is very popular in the 90s 80s america called probe yes yeah there's a board game called probe in his closet isn't that weird it's almost like they wanted it to mean something but they didn't did they definitely not no way we'll move on to the next dream sequence um yeah because he has another basement encounter with freddy at this point where he's kind of implored to put on the knife glove and uh, yeah he finds it in the furnace yeah Freddy's still not really, like, um, not getting into the kind of uh, meat and potatoes of his plan as much as just periodically shouting, kill uh, kill for me, and then disappearing into the night. Meat and potatoes also sounds like dick and balls. Oh, fucking settle down. <laughs> Thank you. You're but, welcome. But yeah, um, his, his, his pitch on what's about to happen does not explain it particularly well. He just shouts, kill for me again, which I believe he did the first time, and then just vanishes and leaves the glove behind. <laughs> Well, Jesse's about to do that very thing because is this not when he heads out in the rain? Uh, no, because well, well, what you have here is we get a, we get a brief kind of cutaway where it's long enough to know that Lisa is throwing a party. So um, just you know, don't introduce a party in Act One that you don't go to in Act Three. Sure, um, Chekhov's party. Yep, yep. I make a Chekhov joke every fucking yeah. week now. By the way, did anyone notice that Grady says he can't go to the party because he threw his grand down the stairs? Yes, I was going to mention that later. I think that's hilarious. I love the fact that no one thinks that that's a weird thing to do. Oh, an absolutely <laughs> monstrous thing. I, to it's do. just, it's just like I can't go. I'm grounded. It's like why well, is like, I threw my I threw my grandma down a flight of stairs and everyone's like, bummer. And then just carries on. I mean, no, no, no. That, that's a legitimate excuse. <laughs> See, an excuse that no one's going to question like that is one of the, it's one of the best ones rather than just, uh, oh, I've got somewhere else to be or yeah. some bullshit. But also, um, I, I think we've talked about it without doing an imitation and I think maybe it would be really good because like, uh, Grady has got a lot of food in his mouth. Maybe it'd be good if Mitch did an impression with <laughs> that in mind. Go uh, on. What do you want me to do? I uh, just repeat the line you did as oh. if you're eating food. Uh-huh, okay. <laughs> I pushed my grandma down a flight of stairs. Happy? <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to see what you would sound like with a dick in your mouth. Oh, shut up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is a fantasy for me. <laughs> This is like weird ASMR. <laughs> this, is, this, is the, this, is, this is the Stitcher Premium version of this episode. Nothing will be cut. Nothing. <laughs> Four hours of raw audio. Three of which is me doing that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, also at this point, Jesse and Grady make fun of Schneider when he's in earshot, which is uh, very embarrassing for everyone involved. They talk a lot about stuffing the, stuff up his ass. He's a stick up his ass, yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't that weird? Isn't that almost weird? I'm just not seeing it, guys. I'm just not seeing it. 
Honestly, Mitch, you're, you're so angelic. Like, none of this even registers yeah, for you. Yeah, pure as a driven right. snow. Um, we head back to the house. It's still incredibly warm. Everyone is still oh, talking about that a lot. Yeah, and yeah, now, my favourite scene. Yes, chaos budgie happens now, and it is my favourite thing in the world. Yeah, so um, they, they have two budgies at this point, not for long. They're love buds, actually, Mitch. Oh, okay. Um, I'm, uh, but, but basically, one kills the other, attacks the dad... <laughs> Trashes the house and bursts into flames. That's about right, yeah. <laughs> also, uh, Clue Gulliger's armed with a broom as well. He does his own share of wrecking the house. That's very true. He's like smashing lamps and just flailing this brush around his head. See, I don't know what's funnier. The actual incident where this happens are afterwards when Clue Gulliger basically accuses Jesse of effectively goading the bird into causing all the trouble. Then he says that, that he actually kind of speculates that Jesse might have filled the bird up with fireworks. I mean, he, he doesn't deny it. He just says, My- you can't talk to me like that, and then leaves. Andy, you're quite correct, though. The sequence that you were talking about was creeping up. Uh, it is night time, so inevitably, Jesse goes outside. Um, this in time, the rain? Yes, in the rain. This time to uh, Dawn's place. <laughs> yeah. Um, where the clientele look like extras from like six different films, but it does become fairly apparent fairly quickly which kind of establishment this is. Not a million miles removed from last week's episode. Yeah, no, no, again, not a million miles away from something that might have cropped up increasing. Schneider was there. Schneider is there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he is dressed in a lot of leather. I would say quite a lot for a straight bar. He's wearing a little strappy number. <laughs> This is the, the way this entire exchange plays out is really, really strange. Do you think so? Yeah, like just, just, <laughs> but just the, the entire. I think like if I was a, if I was a teacher and encountered a student in somewhere like that, I don't think that I would walk up and immediately grab them by the arm and look at them in that really menacing way that he does. So, can I comment as a teacher because I do work within the uh, the secondary education system? Yes, um, of course. So, God. occasionally. When we see our students out in the public, we don't do this. Right, yes. No, I had a feeling, actually. Because there's these things in the UK that means we can't put our students in the showers, tied up, (laughs) whipping. And it's weird. Uh, Was PC gone mad? (laughs) Back in the day, I mean, back in the day, you could punish your your students for almost almost any any indiscretion. But um, yeah. certainly here... Um, <laughs> that never did me any harm. <laughs> no. I feel like Schneider's more annoyed that he's drinking a beer than the fact that he's in Don's place. And he punishes yeah. him by taking him back to the gym to do laps. Like, that's surely outside his jurisdiction at this point. You can't just impose punishments arbitrarily on your students when they're not in school. No, 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 no. I think he's a caring individual because... Like, at this point, Jesse has been drinking underage, so he is just bringing him back to make him exercise out all of the alcohol in his system, right? He doesn't even get that glass to his lips. He has not touched a drop. I feel I might be defending a pedophile. Maybe I shouldn't. (laughs) You know what? Yeah, actually, I would maybe just scale that back 15% or so. 15%? (laughs) There's not 15%. They're all bad. Not in my horror film. So, in terms of the story, Jesse and Lisa go to the power plant. Wait, hang on. We haven't even touched on this scene at all. Oh, oh we've not. Okay, right. So, Because <laughs> there's a lot of stuff goes on here. It is, but it's hot. <laughs> Schneider is uh, pummeled by balls, mm. and, then he, and then it gets quite weird. Mitch, you can take this. I don't want to. Which Mitch? Yeah. <laughs> help, help yourselves fight fight it out amongst us it's over you on this one my perception of this was coach schneider was a he's a cunt right sure so yeah he definitely. is he's getting out those ropes ready to whip 
Jesse. Sure, yes, yes, yes. He is a homosexual. He wants, he, he's gaining sexual satisfaction from abusing Jesse. But guess what? Sometimes the homosexuals are bad people. It does not mean that all people within that, I think this is a wonderfully nuanced portrayal because you're not going to portray every single person within this sexuality as being good. So guess what? Coach is not a good person. Yep. He's not. And he gets his comeuppance. He is fucking whipped. He's got shit around his wrists. And he is... Uh, I don't know. I don't know what kills him. Nothing that happens kills no, him. No, it does. It does. Uh, he gets slashed up. He gets his back slashed up. It's. Uh, I think that like it's kind of... The last thing you see, I think, if I remember rightly, the last thing you see actually happening to him is him getting his back clawed to fuck and then the next day he's found dead in his office and one of the kids who's talking about it says that they found him sliced up like a kielbasa. So right. do you know what a kielbasa yeah. is? That's yes, a I do. Yes, I do. Back at the house, uh, the dad, he he's still claiming that there's absolutely nothing wrong with the house as the as more stuff just kind of spontaneously bursts into flames around him. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep. Um, it's a gas leak. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> this is straight logic, gas leak. Exactly. Um, also in the sequence, just around the time where the toaster catches fire, um, right <laughs> before that happens, Jesse starts following up on some of the things that he's heard on the grapevine about the house, and mm-hmm. um, the dad kind of admits that he knew, and mid-confession, <laughs> the toaster explodes, and he must have kind of felt like he was off the hook a little bit there, because he basically was like, look, I know it's a murder house, or whatever, and everyone's kind of just in the process of getting furious with him, and then the toaster blows up. But the toaster blows up and it's not even plugged in, right? So anyone who's ever seen a haunted house film, you're in the car and you're fucked off. Yes, right. You're not not hanging about in the murder house if things are spontaneously going on fire when they're not plugged in. Well, no. Lisa's done some research at this point as well. Sure Uh, sure she has. At this point, she takes Jesse to the uh, power plant where Freddie used to work. Uh, They have a conversation, but nothing substantive is to be found here apart from a jump scare rat. Well, the film does go to some... I, I, I think... I think there is there is a wonderful wonderful interchange between them in the house party that's uh, is that the bit in the, the kind of pool house that uh, it's just mm-hmm. coming up at the the weird yeah, absolutely the weird party which is helmed by a dad on a barbecue yes um <laughs> yes, which is yes. which is incredibly embarrassing if it's cool. is it all the coolest high school parties yeah <laughs> helmed by helmed by a dad at a barbecue in a chef's hat yeah <laughs> kiss the chef or, oh, fuck, or one of those weird aprons it's just like someone in their pants Oh and, yeah, and yeah. dads think like dads think that's funny. He does strike you as that type, doesn't he? <laughs> Very much so. But yeah, she she does uh, put the moves on him here. Well, yeah, I mean, he is understandably thrown off his start when a foot long grey tongue flops out of his mouth. I think this film was absolutely fascinating. This scene in particular. So favorite bit is uh, all of the teens were like, "Wait till they turn out the lights! Wait till they turn out the lights!" And the parents are getting in bed with their brandy or their whiskey and they switch off the lights and this fucking second they do that. All I, of the teens switch on the volume! Uh, you're like, you're like it's, massive, it's like, massive like, trailers full of beer. Yeah. Everyone immediately yeah. starts but shagging. That, but, <laughs> but that it's, dad... it's, it's like light does not correspond with sound. <laughs> yeah. But the, does the dad not get up to try and stop it but the mum's like oh sit down you dick like let them enjoy themselves yeah, it's like there's there's literally i think two couples shagging in their pool i think the guy has a point i think like if, if, if... Oh, no, yeah, not in the pool if you're gonna need to go <laughs> splashing around in the jizzy water yeah but that's, that's 
it's unhygienic as well. But yeah, you're right though, Mitch. It's like the minute that uh, the light goes off, they think that they can just immediately, like it just immediately goes from being this incredibly wholesome affair to the most debauched thing ever. <laughs> it is. It's like fucking night and day. I mean, I, I almost wish that the film didn't show the scene where the parents were like, what is going on here? Because the disparity between the two is so wonderful. But I also love that they're like, what is going on here? (laughs) Teens will be teens. (laughs) It's good. At this point, yeah, I like Jesse's kind of uh, pretty harassed about all this. Leaves, goes to Grady's. He's in a state of some distress. I think that's fair to say. It goes there and um, yeah, he basically asks Grady to uh, kind of watch him sleep to see how it unfolds, basically what happens. That's pretty much what it is. Yeah, no, it's exactly that. um, And yeah, with good reason because shortly after this, uh, his hand morphs into a Freddy hand. Freddy's face bursts from his midsection. In fact, I mean, it's essentially the same discussion he has with Grady that Nancy has with Johnny Depp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, the entirety of um, of uh, Freddy bursts from his midsection. Yeah, well, and I think it looks pretty cool. Yeah, I think it looks really cool too. Apart um, from the eye and the mouth, that doesn't look particularly great these yeah, days. Not so hot on that, but I think that the rest of it works from a practical perspective. I think it works pretty nicely. I think everything looks great. I think the, the, <laughs> the, the eye and the mouth is so good. Like that, that is a bit. That is a gag that has been used since then. I think. I think the the like the adherence to everything being practical in Jesse's like exclamation is so good so fucking good I think something really cool happens here the one of my favorite shots in the film happens because obviously here uh Freddy slash Jesse uh kills Grady and uh spooks his parents <laughs> spooks his parents <laughs> spooks he they, they they don't see it but they see claws busting through the sun through a door yeah they are more than spooked it's pretty they spooky. Are horrified traumatized their son is dead. Um, I really like this because uh, Jesse is covered in blood. He is looking at Freddy, or so you think. He takes the glove off, throws it at him, and it's a mirror that he's looking at. And I think that that's a really cool. I think that's a really cool shot. I like that. I, uh, that's obviously what's going on. But I think that as a visual representation, I think it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And then he takes off into the night again, back to Lisa's house. Yeah, where literally everyone has paired off by the time we get back. When you when you get the kind of establishing shot of the party outside, I think that there are twelve people there, and they have split into six heterosexual pairs was anyone else a bit freaked out by how much screen time Lamal got on that big poster in Grady's room yes that did freak me out <laughs> I was like I just kept thinking fuck off Lamal I'm actually quite <laughs> like, like uh, <laughs> it's that, like, anyone likes that song The Never Ending Story as much as to have that poster on their wall well he was also in Kajagoogoo so have a, have a Kajagoogoo poster then alright <laughs> So, yeah, everyone else at the party has uh, coupled up. Less successful night for Lisa as Jesse comes back and confesses to multiple murders. <laughs> Jesse and Lisa. The eventual way that the people will sway the narrative of the film is that this is the thing that turns him back to the good side. Because this film has been, I think, misused to portray a straight, restorative logic and this this is the first indication that this would happen so this is where jesse and lisa make out yep i think that i mean this is a strange sex scene does everyone agree yes 100 percent. yes yes i mean I i mean can we be candid we've all been down on someone before no one's been down on anyone like this before. I would, I would, I would, cool. I would like to think so. Carry well, on. I'm glad we're all on the same page. <laughs> so weirdly enough, like this has been a thing that Jack Shoulder, the director, has used as contribution to 
Mark Patton skewing the film. He has said that this is evident that Mark didn't know how to have sex with a girl because this is how he went down on her. I, I know for a fact, and this is, this is in print, this is in documentary, but Kim, the actress that played Lisa, uh-huh. didn't want to have any of her body shown. So the only thing that the tongue, the like six foot tongue, could lick was her stomach. And everyone portrays this as being a fact that Mark is is gay, very, very clearly gay. There's mm-hmm. nothing that is portrayed in the Openly film yeah. that could demonstrate it. And I think that is a really fucking valid point to portray that a point we're going to get onto that everything that the writing, producing, directing team did was almost against Mark. This was in support of the things you see on screen. That that Jesse and Lisa, they're interacting. The way they're interacting in their first sexual scene is awkward. And it's meant to be awkward because what's one of the first things that she says outside of it? She says, Lisa says to him, it's okay. We're going to get through this together. I'm going to be by your side through this. And the, the biggest thing that that reads to me is that it is someone saying, okay, I get, I get it. Yeah. I, I get it. I get it. I get that you, you, we cannot be a thing and I'm going to support you. I'm going to scaffold you. And that is why I, I think this scene is so fucking important. I love this scene. I think it's a wonderfully natural portrayal of teenage sexuality. But the, I mean, and this is the reason I chose this film is it's because it's this weird hotbed of tension that people want to talk about, but also don't want to talk about in sensitive terms because maybe it will change the narrative. Well, I want to change the narrative. This is the thing that me and the documentary want to do is we want to change the narrative about how we talk about Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. And this is the first point in the film where the narrative changes. That's awesome. So... Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Outside by the pool. The pool is now boiling yep. um, with people in it. Uh, remember that Jed's soup I was talking about? Yep. Um, simmering. Simmering away. It's a slow simmer. Yep. <laughs> a, ro- a rolling boil. Yeah, it's because it's being brought to the boil. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, and um, yeah, hot dogs are bursting into flame. And uh, people's beers are exploding. Yep. Um, it seems that the, the, the temperature's rising across the board. Yes, that is fair to say, I would say. While this is going on, uh, we kind of have a standoff of sorts and a kind of final standoff between Freddy slash Jesse and Lisa. Yeah, obliquely Jesse. Yes, obliquely, yeah. Jesse's very much gone at this point in favour of Freddy. Freddy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because um, because yeah, they, they because obviously they have this exchange before the kind of party descends into absolute chaos. Freddy has this confrontation in the kitchen, uh, with Lisa, where he basically says, uh, "Oh, kind of, uh, I'm Jesse now." And at this point, yeah, we we're talking about this before. How kind of the mythology doesn't match up now because this is the point where he starts attacking people in the real world. Well, no, well, he, yeah, everyone he kills, he, he doesn't kill anyone who's dreaming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. everyone yeah. he kills is awake at the time so uh yeah that, that, it, that's the big thing i suppose for me in terms of what they changed about the character from the first film coming into this one um but yeah um freddy's now i guess unshackled and allowed to do whatever the hell he likes if you want an idea of how hot things have got the water in the pool bursts into flames mm-hmm. don't know if that can happen <laughs> no. but, uh, but, um and yeah he kind of just hacks and slashes his way through the party um one guy foolishly tries to talk him down yeah historically he not the smartest yeah, yeah and, uh, doesn't go particularly well for him um and i don't know why he thought it would work 
because Freddy doesn't look like the most approachable. He looks like a bad lasagna. It does, does indeed. No, a bad lasagna that won't listen this, to reason. This is this is the scene where I'm like, all of the practical effects are so wonderful unto this scene, and you want to bring Freddy into the daylight. It's not daylight, but like, it's so bad. He do, looks so bad. Do we suppose? Part of me always thinks because he looks so jarringly different to the way he looks in the rest of the film here. Yeah. I've always wondered if there was some attempt made to make him look like Jesse a little bit. I wondered that. I or... thought I thought that was going on. A couple of times when you see him in close-up in the end and kind of with the confrontation that they have at the plant, uh, I thought, it, it did cross my mind, that I thought that the reason, one of the reasons why he looks so weird here is because I thought there was an attempt being made to make him look a little bit like Jesse. Mm. I like that theory. I, I wish I it was like more. You don't like the theory. I think he is a representation of internal homophobia, the way we repress everything that we put inside ourselves. So I don't think that what he shows here is someone being elacious and finally unleashing the things they want to do, because that is detracting to the cause. That's my opinion. Right, so you're you're saying when Freddy's running around the party slashing people up, there's way way more to that as well. I think that Freddy slashing people up is a way of expressing the discord, right, and the um the upset that exists within someone that is queer. Yeah, story wise, what we're getting to is basically the end. Yes, when Freddy and Lisa have uh, this kind of encounter at the plant. <laughs> Yeah, can I just quickly mention the two Rottweilers with baby faces that are clearly just really bad masks on two very big Please dogs? Please do, because I love that. That is like Silent Hill. They're so good. They're fucking terrifying. They, like, I, that was a, I was a proper double tape moment. I was, I was in a film that is full of kind of like fairly strange images. I, I was like, hold on a minute, what is that? I don't know. I find them quite silly. It's so good. I don't, I, I don't, I don't even know what to make of this because they're they're. They aren't evidently any actor's face. They're just human face on a dog. Ah! It's like those weird baby masks that you can buy. It's just like them and we've just... Like the Happy Death Day mask. Yeah, we've just put it on a dog and hope they don't go mental and rip it off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would would say that the shelf life of those masks was approximately (laughs) 10 seconds longer than the shot. (laughs) But yeah, at this point... um, I had in my notes um, that I was going to be furious if true love saved the day. And in a way, it kind of does. Now, do your theory. That is a fair surface reading. Yeah, I think so. I think, I, I think that it looks here like the fact that what ultimately defeats Freddy is Lisa's love for Jesse. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, 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 like, and basically just like, I, I kind of like taking that at face value, I don't particularly care for that as how it unfolds. No, it, to me, it's it, it, purely on a from a storytelling perspective. It's it's quite lazy. Arguably, the lamest. Even some of the ones down the line, four and five, where Freddy's death's pretty lame, and you're like, I, I, that makes no sense. To me, this is lamer because there's actually no attempt made to do anything mm-hmm. really that cool apart from the pretty excellent what melting head. Yeah, I have a lot of theories. <laughs> the, the 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 biggest reading on homosexuality in the film is that. Jesse overcomes the desires that he has inside himself. We have Lisa being the uh, the straight love victim. She solves him of everything, all the problems that he's got. And he is suddenly, he's not Freddy because he has been. 
Mm-hmm. So suddenly he is now Jesse again, purely because of her, purely because of straight love, right? Right. And then the credits roll. But no. I don't buy it because all of us non-straight people have, have viewed the film and gone, what the fuck? We don't buy this because Lisa is technically the scream queen. She's the heroine. She saves Jesse. Mm-hmm. She she exists purely to mean he can survive. But does he survive in a good case? No, because he is the embodiment of Freddy. That is what we see in the final scene. We see Jesse erupting from his chest. We see us retrogressing towards the bus scene in the first circumstance. We see suddenly the fact that he is not the protagonist. He is this antagonist that has been brought here because of the stifling of his sexuality. Because Jesse wants to be out. He wants to be open. But everything that has happened thus forth says he must be this leading male stereotype. What we get in the finale is Lisa saying, I love you. You're going to be mine. But guess what? He's he's not yours, Lisa. He is out and proud. And you can't stifle that. And what we get instead is this bus trundling off to Neverwhere because we inherently, as queer people, are not evil, but stifle us. And yes, we will fucking destroy you. We will be the villains. And that is not homophobic. And that's the main thing with this film. I think a lot of people feel that the ending is homophobic because Jesse is embracing the dark side. Well, the only reason he's embracing the dark side is because Lisa is overpowering him. He's been pushed to it, she, yeah, she is being the main focus of the story. And she's saying, I'm going to save you. Well, he doesn't need, need saving. saving. Got you. He doesn't. Wow. That, is a, that is a great read on the ending that I am yeah, quite happy right. to admit that I would never have picked up on, on no, my own. I'm quite, I'm quite happy to admit that. One thing I will say, though, is he might not have needed saving, but he might have to answer some questions into his uh, conduct and uh, subsequent crimes. Yeah, for <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> sure. But with that, we're out on Elm Street 2. And it was a roller coaster. Yeah, and what I would say about this is, if I can go first with the kind of concluding comments of course. on this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that like the things that I don't like about this film are the things that don't really do it for me about this film are kind of fairly superficial things. Okay. Like I would say that like, mm-hmm. I, I, I think that speaking to somebody, and I mean, you, you, you know what I'm like with these things. I was obviously watching this for the first time today. Of course I fucking was. Sure. Um, which means that the <laughs> yeah. order that I've seen these in are one, three, four, two, right? And those are the ones that I've seen. So I think that probably I would say that the things about this that were off-putting to me on first watch was the fact that I didn't have some of the kind of... Because I, I, I don't mind telling you that in some of the later ones, the kind of cartoonishness of some of the set pieces and things like that really appealed to me. Right, okay. okay. Um, and I think that like just just kind of like stepping back and looking at, looking at it as an Elm Street film, I think that when I came away from it, I was kind of like, I thought this was okay, but... X, Y, and Z things were missing. Sure. But then you're looking at it in the context of the franchise. The whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and I would say that like the the kind of gripes that I have with it or had with it, I would say, are probably those kinds of things. And I don't don't mind saying that I, on first watch, missed a lot of the things that you talked about 
and I think that this has been a valuable conversation for that reading reason. Um, because I think that yeah, it's 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 the kind of thing, and I don't know if I'm speaking for anybody else here at all. I don't. Maybe I'm just not that perceptive. <laughs> but like, uh, but it is. The, but the, but these are the kind of things, and it's the kind of beats that I might not catch. And I'm glad we've had an opportunity to dig them out in such detail here. Can I ask what what were the beats that you really thought was um, like abstract to you? I think the key thing. I think the main one would probably be that I didn't understand or pick up on exactly what the stinger ending means yeah okay and i think that and i, and I think that it's it's the, i think that the way you pulled that back around kind of framed your argument in a nice way so a lot of people think that when jesse is confronted with being gay everything we have built in there is him resisting that fact okay and what a lot of people say to the negative that in the finale sequence you have Jesse and Lisa sailing off into the sunset on their school bus or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And they're very happy. And then what happens is just a product of the studio. It's, it's Bob Shea going, Well, you need a jump scare. Yeah. So we're gonna have we're gonna have Freddie come through her. Well, I call bullshit. I don't believe that. I think that the Everything that happens in the finale is very much indicative and it's built up to being this queer narrative, which I stand by. I'm playing devil's advocate here. I don't think the intention was to condemn Jesse's queerness. No. Or queerness in general. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. The ending was certainly have you think that Lisa's love for him exercises the demons. That's the main read. And then in the coda, it's that no he comes out so does heterosexuality save the day no no i agree no. that and not certainly not in my experience but a lot of <laughs> but <laughs> i'm here to talk about scream queen the documentary by mark patton yeah sure. and i mean we, we can start pulling into that if you like because obviously this like the fact that you programmed that at soho kind of was the one of the drivers for why you chose this so absolutely yes so the the, the main thing that he's talking about is that this was a queer film, no matter what you perceive it as. So Jesse wants to accept his queer identity, and he does, but he doesn't at the end. And the reason why Freddy bursts forth through him and drives the fucking bus into the desert is because he does not accept it. So what we have here is some queer propaganda. That's my read. <laughs> Oh, I'm, 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 I'm happy to steal it and make it my read as well. Man. <laughs> Go on, have it. Yeah. And, and I'll just say quickly, I don't even put this film in the lower half of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise because I think the drop-off after... I've said it before on the show, I'll say it again, I, I think the drop-off after Dream Warriors is pretty dramatic. But I think it's probably more interesting than all the other films. And it's, it's, got more to say. it's got more to say. It's, really certainly, it's certainly got more to say than later on when he kills a deaf guy, like uses a guy's deafness against him to kill him. Which, and we kind of touched on the fact, we've kind of touched on Soho a couple of times, Soho Horror Festival, which obviously returned for its second year um, just a couple of weekends ago there. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations by all accounts. A great success again. And uh, working on working on year number three already. I believe. Is that correct? I mean, working on year number three this weekend, I, I watched the first entry, I guess. Amazing. For uh, Soho Horror Fest 2020. Yes. Um, Spoiler alert. Was it good? Was that a good one or was it shit? This weekend. No, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first of many films. What? The first of many films that won't you. make the cut. Last year, we spoke about 2019 Soho Horror Fest and I said, 
well, I've just viewed something for next year that we're going to play. And yeah. guess what? We did play it. Oh, really? Wonderful. Which one? Which one was that? So it was Arctic. Ah, right. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, the, the the lineup this year was amazing, Mitch. I think, and I'm I'm really sorry, just on a personal note, that I couldn't be there. I think that um, from a programming perspective, it seems like uh, for one thing, I mean, we've talked about this a bunch of times on the, before. When we've talked about programming festivals and stuff on the show. I um, I really like what you do um, with running shorts with features that kind of match them thematically, yeah. but also. I think that you have, to my mind anyway, you have this imperviousness to what there is a buzz about and things like that. I think that like you look for things that will surprise people. You look for things that necessarily like folk won't necessarily have seen kicking around at other festivals and things like that. I mean, on a personal level for myself, I really like that you do that, Mitch. That you kind of step outside just looking at what's played at earlier festivals, the buzz around them, and just say, right, well, that played well there. I want that. Um, and you just do your own thing based on the stuff that you see that you think that's pretty fucking interesting. And it's and it speaks for them. It speaks for itself this year, obviously, because weekend passes sold out. I believe individual screening tickets sold out too. I mean, thank you for all the things you said. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the thing I want to do most is program films that don't get a chance to play in the UK. Mm-hmm. I have two prerogatives. The one thing is playing films that aren't previously shown on the big screen. Mm-hmm. which is great but we have so much competition wonderful fucking competition from celluloid abattoir grimfest like great festivals but also abstract to that i also just want to offer a festival environment to people that maybe can't afford to go to the sure. larger festivals like mm-hmm. Fright and that, that maybe don't have the mental health dexterity to go to a festival where you've got 300 people asking you what your favorite horror film is sure. that's that, can, that's, yeah. that can be overwhelming yeah, that's, that's that can be overwhelming it's, intimidating. Like, it's so inte- it's so intense and that that that's exactly what i want soho horror fest to be i want it to be this like internal family and that's what we had this year and i can't express how fucking ecstatic and proud i am honestly uh for every like honestly you're gonna get films that people don't care about as much as you do but I am elated to say that every film that played this festival was voted highly, like genuinely. Should we do, um, I mean, like, uh, this is is putting you guys on the spot, but do you want to have an exclusive? Do you want to have, like, the audience votes tonight? Yes, Uh, absolutely. If you you have the result. If if you have them there, um, yeah, we'd we'd be honoured. Our audience vote with a staggering 4.8 out of 5 is scream queen my nightmare on elm street the documentary talking about the the film that we we've discussed at length today i couldn't be more happy for it to resound with the audience i was utterly astounded um i've been speaking to damien and jeff and mark in the build-up to this right and they have so much care in this documentary i mean everything we've just talking about um freddy's revenge I think is a subtle indication of how much these guys care about this film mm-hmm. um, because it's, it's, it's utterly incredible. Honestly, they care about it so much and it is indicative of a powerful movement that is slowly burgeoning. Mm-hmm. And if there is anything that I could ever want my festival to, be, to stand for mm-hmm. is a social point about queer horror. If you remember us talking last year, about our little queer horror gala with yeah, sure. blues. Yeah, yeah queer, fears. queer fears. Yeah, 
well, this year it's taking another stance and it's very, very political in the UK. And I don't shy away from that. I think it's fucking astounding. We also have had the UK premiere of Z from the guys that made Stillworn and what keeps you alive wow and you got to dress up and and me and you had talked about this when i saw you very briefly at celluloid screams but you did manage to bust out the dinosaur costume mighty by the way absolutely mighty that also happened tammy and the the t-rex is maybe the best film that's ever existed No, yeah. I, I might not have seen this, but are there dates in the diary for next year? Soho Horror Fest Part 3 will return November 2020. Cool. Cool. And you'll keep us apprised of those dates as and when you have them, I'm guessing, sir. No, I won't. I won't tell you. <laughs> uh, that's, that's fair. I, I, I can understand. Well, if we're going to have to go and find out for ourselves, where can we do that on social media with yourself and the festival? You can you can follow us on at Soho Horror Fest at Twitter or Instagram and Soho Horror Film Festival on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. All right. Mitch, thank you again as always. This has been a, a delight. Mitch, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. We really appreciate it. Andy, Mitch, I fucking love you guys. Thank you so much. And we much. love you. So. We love you too. Yes. Well, I'd just like to say that I really enjoyed myself there. What did you think, Mitch? In actual fact, Mitch is gone. There's been a Mitch exodus, and all that remains is me. Mitch had to leave, he's left me in charge, and for the first time, I think, in the history of the show, you have to contend with me. On my own, unshackled. My behaviour uncontrolled, uh, as I desperately try to figure out how the hell I wrap up an episode, because there's stuff that Mitch would normally do in this situation that I simply don't know. For example, I had to just check what our social media handles were. But yeah... If you have any questions or thoughts or anything regarding this show or any other show that we've done, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at StrongViolentPC and on Instagram at StrongLanguageViolentScenes. You can also email longer thoughts to StrongLanguageViolentScenes at gmail.com. And of course, as you know, we have our own website, StrongViolentPod.com, where you can find all the relevant information for just about everything to do with the show, including our uh, tour days as we have them. I say tour days because that's looking increasingly likely next year given some of the dates that are being bandied around. And of course links to RT Public which is constantly undergoing a sale of some sort. I believe right now it's Black Friday. All that said, please, 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 whatever you're listening, get in touch, leave us a review, tell your pals, all that stuff. It would be massively appreciated. And I know I speak for Mitch here as well when I say, listener, we love you. Thank you so much. There'd be no point in us doing this without you. So we'll be back on Monday with another mini-sode. In the meantime, wow, this was really weird to say. It's better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Goodbye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.